Let's have a word of prayer and let's launch into the word of God. I just want to say welcome though. Father, I'm just so grateful today for Jesus, for the living and abiding word of God. I mean, if we go to Ukraine, there are whole cities that don't exist anymore. I mean, if we think that we're living here and everything's sure, Putin just threatened to destroy our country with atomic weapons. Now, probably posturing, but what a world we live in. This is as bad as the Cold War was during Kennedy. And yet somehow we're so numb that we don't value that which matters most for the coming of Christ, the assembling of the saints, the word of God, the ministry of the church. Lord, we need you to hover over us. Father, I was reading Nehemiah this morning, my devotions, listening to it actually on the audio tape, and where he said, you know, I have sinned, Father. My house has sinned. Our nation has sinned. And Lord, help us to rebuild our house. Get me over there where I can build up the ruins of previous generations. Father, everything should have brought this church down many years ago, but it didn't. So we're praying, Father, to love the cause of God in our lifetime and to live for others. So grant us insight and proper living from the Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. Both the Chinese philosopher Confucius and the Christian theologian St. Augustine agreed on the idea of what must be the true foundation of all virtues. Confucius said outright that humility is the solid foundation of all virtues. Augustine got there with a question in a roundabout kind of way. He wrote, Do you wish to rise? Begin by descending. You plan a tower that will pierce the clouds? That's a question implied. Then he said, lay first the foundation of humility. Both the Chinese philosopher and the Christian theologian agree that humility is the foundation of all virtues upon which a good life is built. How many of you are proud of your humility today? Keep your hands down. All right, now. See, the problem with humility, as soon as you think you've arrived, you haven't. Now, philosophers pontificate about that stuff that's, that's non-material, that the thinking of the mind, the values, the virtues, and the like. The English political and natural philosopher Edmund Burke was more practical than these two. He was a little utilitarian in his penchant for truth. He was more empirical. He affected the Baconian scientific methodology. And he wrote, good order is the foundation of all things. How many of you like having your kitchens in order, your houses? You know, I've noticed if I mess around in our kitchen trying to order it, my wife looks at me with that evil look. What are you messing around in my domain? Ladies like ordering their kitchens. Husbands are going to have to negotiate what they do in the kitchen. The transcendentalist Henry David Thoreau had a way of turning good ideas upside down, as was the custom of his rebellious skeptical time in early American history. And Thoreau wrote that, quote, disobedience is the true foundation of liberty. The obedient must be slaves. I don't like that. I think that's a little transcendental too much. To me, that sounds a lot like Satan. And I guess I'm not a fan of Henry David Thoreau and the whole transcendental movement. Philosopher kings and Christian theologians have posited their own ideas on what the right foundation is for a good and moral life. I mean, you can go to to all kinds of folks today, I mean, secular or not, and they'll tell you, and um, Jordan Peterson's perhaps the most famous in psychological circles with his 12 rules of life. They'll tell you what they think you've got to do to have a good life. And some of it's good, some of it isn't, some of it's in between. Yet none of their ideas, and I'll say this forthrightly, none of their ideas are worth a plug nickel compared to the clear teaching of Jesus Christ, who is the brilliant, wise, powerful Son of God, who knows the very mind and heart and the character of Almighty God, who knows how to give us the right and noble life that is happy and full. So who's the expert on the life that we need to live? It's Jesus. Give me Jesus, friend, as teacher over any philosopher king in the history of the world, and I will be satisfied with the advice. Are you with me? You with me? Okay. Because Jesus is the creator of the world and the universe, and Jesus really knows what truth is. Jesus doesn't just teach truth. Friends, 
Jesus is the truth we need. God spoke the law on Mount Sinai and fire and smoke and wind. You remember that in Exodus 19? Came down. The mountain shook. They put a, a border around the mountains that don't go up or the glory of God will wipe you out. I mean, awesome display of power. He spoke, and I think of Charlton Heston, the Ten Commandments. You know, it's kind of in our culture through media and other means. But when God gave the Ten Commandments, friend, God the Father was speaking through the pre-existent Jesus Christ to give us his law. Christ was the intermediate agent whose voice declared the will of the Father God in the Ten Commandments. Why? Because Jesus is, and Jesus has always been, the Word of God. Did you hear me? Jesus is, and Jesus has always been, the Word of God. John says in John 1 verse 1 of Jesus that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we see that the Word is not some idea or philosophy or philosophical construct or, or impersonal force. He says in verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. The Word is a He and a Him. And without Him was nothing made that was made. This personal agent, the masculine Word of God, created the universe. Verse 4, and here's the part that matters to us because we live in the domain of, of crazy living where life is not worth much in the world context. It's cheap. It says, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, we struggle with darkness in our life. We struggle with darkness imposed by forces around us, by financial, by financial challenges and the like. And the fact is that Christ is the light we need for our life if we want to really have the abundant life. In John 9, John writes, the true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. God's light is not some distant quasar stuck out there that doesn't matter to you and me. God's light is Jesus who came to us to give us the abundant life. Jesus isn't just light, friend. Jesus is the true light, according to the Gospel of John. Christ possesses authentic and awesome credentials to teach us and to guide us because Jesus is the Word of God. And Jesus is the light of truth. And Jesus is the creator of the whole universe. And let me get personal. Jesus made you for Him. John is clear that Jesus is the Word of God in the book of Genesis, who was in the beginning with God. You go back to the book of Genesis. How many of you like reading the book of Genesis? You like it? Okay, I like it a lot. I like the first ten chapters especially. Epic literature. And when you read it, you wonder, well, where is Jesus there? Well, the light of creation, according to Paul, was Christ. God said, let there be light. Before there was a sun, moon, or star, Jesus was there. The first word and the first light in the Bible, the same thing. And God said, let there be light. And the Bible indicates that that light was not created, but it appeared in the darkness and the void. It was the pre-existent Son of God who glowed up the darkness of a void and created life for us. It was Christ on day one of creation. The book of Genesis means a beginning. In the beginning. The Hebrew is bereshit. The Hebrew is the Greek Septuagint is in our K. And that's what John gets in John 1.1. 1, 1. In our K, in the beginning. Jesus calls himself the R.K. in the latest scene message. He is the beginning. I am reading now from the King James Version. So let's go back to Genesis and find out where we see Jesus as the Word of God. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Now, my Revised Standard Version, unfortunately, does not translate a vital Hebrew word here. So we're going to look at the New King James Version of Genesis 15, verse 1. <clears throat> I place it on your screen. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, notice that word, saying, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Now look at this verse, and don't read quickly over it. The Bible says the word of the Lord here was alive. At the beginning, in the book of Genesis, when he came to Abram in a vision and he spoke to Abram, the word of the Lord was speaking to Abram. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. 
See, when a, when a prophet receives a vision from God, it's not so, just some existential experience where they're hoping something good will happen. God is speaking in that vision to a righteous prophet. God visited this church in the 1800s with that same kind of activity we see here recorded in Genesis 15. The word of the Lord spoke to Abram in that vision. The word of the Lord cared about Abram to ease his fears of things and to speak to him, to be personal to him. The word of the Lord said, I am your shield. The word of the Lord said, I am your exceedingly great reward. So if you have the word of the Lord in your life, you are rich. It doesn't matter what's happening around you. The word of the Lord, he comes to you and elevates your life. In the Bible, the word of the Lord, friend, is not an idea. The word of the Lord is not a philosophy for moralists to tout about and look smart and superior to others. The word of the Lord, now hear me now, is a person, the person who cares about you, who is the greatest reward you can have in life when you, like Abram, are afraid of what might happen to you all around. If you have the word of the Lord in your life, friend, you have an exceedingly great reward because the word of the Lord is the Lord. The simplest and most profound statement of Jesus concerning the person of Christ in the New Testament, which is a confession of faith, is two words. And it's Jesus, it's Jesus Kyrios. Jesus is Lord, and it means Jesus is Yahweh, Lord. The, the Yahweh, the I am who I am, Lord of Abraham, the Lord of creation, the Lord who gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, the Lord who is the Word of God. When theologians seek to define the Word of God outside of the person, the presence, the power of Jesus Christ, they're not talking about the Word of God anymore. They're talking about their own ideas. You cannot separate who Jesus is from the words that came from him to us. They are the same. When you open your Bible, and take your Bibles with me, just open it. I don't know about you. When I open my Bible and I put my hand on the pages, are they smooth on your, in your Bible? Isn't that a good feeling? It, just, it feels like someone is massaging my hand, especially if I use the backside of it. Now, if you go to the book of Daniel, you'll see so much of that that the pages have fallen apart. But when I'm holding my Bible, I'm touching Jesus. The Christ of, of the Old Testament, the Word of God. The Jesus who is Lord. I'm touching Him because He lives and breathes in this document. It is a God-carried document with Him in it. We live in a time when there are so many smart people who think they're smarter than this book. They're too smart to go to heaven, frankly. Because God has condescended to give us in our language through human personalities, his eternal word carried, not just inspired, not just given to us in the days of the prophet, but carried through the centuries into a form that is intentional for the last days, the Bible we hold in our hand. So when you open your Bible and you peek inside the written word of God, friend, you are looking at Jesus Christ, the living and abiding word of God, the light of life that we need in our lives. And Jesus, who is the Word of God, came to Abram in a vision when a vision was first recorded in Holy Scripture for the very first time in the book of Genesis. Right there in Genesis 15.1, we see Jesus in a vision, and Jesus, the Word of God, speaks. Jesus has a name in the book of Revelation when he comes at the end of time. You see, what Abram needed at the dawn of time in the book of Genesis, when salvation history begins to be recorded, we need at the end of time, if we are to be saved and to be taken to heaven in the second coming of Christ. How many of you want to be left behind when Jesus comes? Take your hands and put them smack on the floor. None of us should. How many of you want to be ready when Christ comes? want to be in the crowd that says, Lord, take me. This is my God. I've waited for him. Well, look, if we want to be ready, we need to be studying prophecy. We need to be studying Genesis, the teachings of Jesus all together. Christ has the same name in the book of Revelation he had in Genesis 15.1. Turn to Revelation 19 verse 9. Let me kind of bleed into the context with you. And the angel said to me, John, write this. Here John completes the Bible, the last book in the canon that we have will be the book of Revelation. Write this, blessed are those. Now where have we seen the word blessed a lot in the Bible? Can you think of one good sermon where it shows up a lot? Yes, where? Uh, Beatitudes, yes, and the Mount, of trans, uh, the Mount of Blessings, Matthew 5. This is the language of Jesus. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And he said to me, these, now look at this. He says, these are the what? How does it read in your Bible? True words of God. You know, I've said people say, well, you know, it's not the words of the Bible. The, the words of the Bible really aren't carried by God. They're human. He kind of bounces around. We can get the ideas of God generally from the Bible. Nonsense. God carries his word so that the words are intentional. Well, it's true. It's not the words of the Bible inspired, but the men of the Bible inspired. Through the inspiration of God's word, the power of the Holy Spirit produces intentional words as outcome so that his word is carried for us and has authority in our lives. Then John started to fall down and worship the angel, but the angel said, look, don't do that. There goes most of the New Age movement. There goes a lot of what people think is okay in certain religions where you can bow down and worship this God and that and so on. The angel said, I'm not in the worshiping business. You don't worship me. Look at verse 10. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. This is the angel Gabriel most likely. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. So the prophets are servants. The angels are servants. Worship God. For, and I like this verse. For the testimony of Jesus is what? What does it say? When anybody knocks the spirit of prophecy, you know what they're knocking? The testimony of Jesus. Do you want Jesus' words in your life? I want every one of them. When God moves upon a righteous prophet to speak, to share his will, that is the testimony of Jesus Christ, the word of God. Now verse 11, then I saw heaven opened. It's amazing how when we come to grips with the Word of God, we come to grips with Jesus, that we listen to His voice, things open up for us in life, and it will be true at the end of time. Heaven opens. I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse. Christ is coming back like a general. True, and it says, He who sat upon it is called faithful and true. So Christ has a number of names. In the book of Revelation, He says, I'm the true witness. And so He's the faithful and true witness. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Now, Christ came to save us on the cross. At the end of time, he's coming to rescue us from the beast power and evil forces that would destroy us. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name inscribed which no one knows but himself. Now, that means Jesus, friend, has penetrating knowledge like fire in the eyes of understanding and perception. Same picture in Daniel 10 of the man in linen who was the pre-existent Christ in verse 5 and thereabouts. <clears throat> Christ has many diadems, friend, because Jesus is the ultimate authority in the universe. You can't get more powerful than Christ. Christ has a name. Now here we are, and we know in, Bible, in the Bible a name represents someone's character. Christ is a name which is his in God's character. Now last week, we talked about God's name. What is God's sacred name? Do you remember? What was it? Yahweh. And what does it mean? I am who I am, right? So God's name is his character. Who God is, is his name. Now what, what piece of revelation in Exodus 20 reveals the divine name? The Ten Commandments. So that's like why Psalms 119.55 says that when you, when you meditate on his law, you, you meditate on his name, you keep his law. Because God's law and God's name is the same thing. Now here's a quiz question. Last week, where does the law go? In Deuteronomy 6. It goes where? On your heart and as? On your forehead, frontlets between your eyes. And where else does it go? In your hand. Now where does the mark of the beast go at the time of the end? Same place. So what would that imply that the mark of the beast is an attack on? God's law, which is God's name. Now, Revelation 14.1, the 140,000 have what on their foreheads? The Father's name and the Lamb's name, which means his law. Of course, in Revelation 7, the seal goes there. So we should never forget that God's name and God's law is the same thing. In verse 13, Christ's robe is dipped in blood because he died on the cross as the word of God. You know, we should never hurry over a verse like this. Jesus died for me. Did he die for you too? Do you got awful chapters in your life that you can't fix and make up for? And you just don't want to face God with that awful legacy of how you let him down. 
Do you have that in your life? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit in the Sermon on the Mount. Dear heart, Jesus died for our sins. To take them away, John says he has loosed us. He, the one who loves us has loosed us, in the Greek, from our sins. You are not defined by them at ever if you are in Christ. You may struggle, you may fail, you may fall in your upward movement. Because we're always moving up in faith. But you are accepted every day in the Beloved. Therefore, we have grace and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts his letters that way because the gospel of God teaches that vital truth that we need. Christ died for me. His robe was dipped in blood. The blood that I should have shed, he shed his for me. Amazing thing. The book of Revelation reinforces for the final generation the gospel of grace that saves us and keeps us and holds us all the way to the judgment day. The clearest word of God is found in the silence and the darkness of the cross. God spoke the Ten Commandments at Sinai. God the Father was silent in the darkness of the cross. As Christ prayed for forgiveness... As Christ died for our sins and in the darkness and silence of the cross, we hear the Ten Commandment law of love in louder terms than we could ever hear with our ears. We see it by faith beyond the darkness of the cross. And so John says the glory of God that Moses wanted to see is in the cross. Verse 13, now here it is, Revelation 19. He, Jesus, is clad in a robe, robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is, and what's the name? Come on. The Word of God. The same name we saw back there in Genesis 15, verse 1. When the Word of the Lord came to Abram, saying in a vision, the name that no one knows, but he himself, is the Word of God. Why? Why is it so mysterious? Here's why. Because to be the Word of God... You have to know the mind and heart of God. And to be God, that is why no one knows the full depths and meaning of the Word of God, but one who is. And Jesus thus is the Word of God. You can never plumb the depths of God's Word in all eternity. It's deeper than your ability to know. And yet you can know in part. We can know a little of, of the Word at a time, but not all of it. We can never know all there is to know of God in Jesus and the Word in our lifetime we will ever be studying the Bible. Believe it or not, it's an eternal document meant for us for all eternity. Friend, the Word of God, I know from personal Bible study, and I've been in this chiastic linguistic thing for about 20 years, it is an infinite system of truth. For these reasons and more, we can know with certainty that Jesus spoke the law of God on Mount Sinai as the Lord God. He was the voice of God. The loving Word of God communicated the, the mind the character of God to the children of Israel. When Israel was just a child, when Jesus spoke the Ten Commandments, that baby nation at Mount Sinai and gave them the constitution of the universe, the name, the law of God. That is why the Sermon on the Mount, how many of you like the Sermon on the Mount? You read it? The Sermon on the Mount is the heart of Jesus' teaching, New Testament. The Sermon on the Mount is such a dramatic event in the plan of salvation because the one who spoke the law at Sinai is now speaking it in contextual, practical terms in his ministry as the God-man Jesus Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes up a mountain just like Sinai and just like Moses went up. To, and he goes up to speak the living word of God as God, but he's also the new Moses. He's a human being. And Jesus, the new Moses, is God in human form, giving God's law all over again in the Sermon on the Mount in clear, practical terms so the people can understand. Now, I highly recommend a book. I'm going to recommend, you get your pencil out. You got a pencil here, pen? Pull it out of your pocket. Find a piece of paper. Pull out that dollar bill if that's all you got. Write on it. I don't want to deface money. They say that's a crime. Pull that back, okay? Write on something. The book Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings by Ellen White is the greatest exposition on the Sermon of the Mount ever produced in human history. It is practical and profoundly deep at a level that is inspired. She stands head and shoulders over modern theologians in her exposition of Jesus' sermon. Why is that? Because most modern theologians say the law of God was done away with. She gets it right. 
but she teaches it in loving terms in the, in the context of who Jesus is. Friend, the Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus going up the mountain to preach to the crowds who could see him as a man. The Sermon on the Mount ends with Jesus coming down the mountain where great crowds saw him ready to heal and to teach. So he goes up the mountain, the crowds, behold, see, the same thing at the end. The narrative matches with meaning, with meaning on each side, tight. And it's poetic, moving toward the middle, that is the mountain peak, the center of the Sermon on the Mount. And they call that kind of thing a chiastic structure, where the front and the backside parts match in order, moving toward the middle, where the purpose, the most important part, is in the middle. The middle is the secret place in this Sermon on the Mount. The exact center, in fact, is Matthew 6, verse 6, where we meet God in the secret place of our closet at the top of the Sermon on the Mount, where God finds you and you find God, just like Moses did. Look at Matthew 6, verse 6. Here is the center of the Sermon on the Mount. But when you pray, go into your room. And I, I think Jesus is here referring your mind that inner room that no one can get into but God and you. Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. He's there in your head. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, go back to Genesis 15.1 in our memory. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Fear not, Abram. Your reward is exceedingly great. And here it says... If you find God in the secret place, your reward is sure as well. When you find God in prayer, you find God like Abram did in the secret place. It was in vision he felt God. We find him in our prayer life, our devotional life, at the top of the Mount of Blessings where we meet God because Christ has led us to God in the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount, chiasm, teaches us a lot of things. Let me just show you a few little elements, not a lot. I realize these things can be overburdening if you go through everything. So let me show you a few little elements on the front side and the back side as it moves toward the middle. You see up there on the screen, I have A, seeing the crowds in Matthew 5.1. It matches Matthew 8.1 and 2, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Great crowds followed him and behold. B, the next slide, B and B prime. B is on the front side. He went up the mountain, Matthew 5.1, on the back side. When he went down from the mountain. It's an opposite, but the same language. Go back to the front side, Matthew 5.3, moving a little more toward the middle. Blessed are the poor in, what does the text say up there? Come on. Spirit. Now the Greek word for spirit is pneuma, and it means wind. Now on the back side, you have the same Greek word in Matthew 7.27. And the winds, that's the spirits, blew and beat against that house. What makes people's houses to fall down? Well, there are evil spirits out there. The four winds are the four... Uh, Winds of strife, the four universal evil spirit context of the end, being opposed by angels who are equally winds. And so, friends, our houses are in danger of being blown down by evil demonic forces. But Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, because I'm going to guard your spirit. Number D, blessed are those who mourn, Matthew 5, verse 4. That's the beginning, moving toward the center. You go to the end. Now, what would that match? What's that? Oh, that's, that's all right. I, I, I thought I heard a prayer on there or something. That's okay. I, you know what? I bring my phone to church, and I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, but I have to cut it off. But I haven't always succeeded. When it rings back there, it's a, it's, you know, I've done that. We're just glad you're in church. Let's look at D. Blessed are those who what? Mourn. Now, what happens when you cry? Come on, help me through this. What happens to your eyes? They well up, we use the metaphor of a well, and then water starts what? Now, if you're crying a lot, what kind of tears is that? It's a flood of tears, right? So Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Now, on the other side of the chiasm, and the rain fell, and the floods came. See, when the spirit winds blow against your house to knock it down, sometimes we break down and we start crying. How can I put up with all this nonsense? Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. He deals with tears so the floods will not sweep you away. And look at E and E prime, the last two. The meek, for they shall inherit the earth, firm ground where the rock is found. On the other side, E prime, Matthew 7, 26. 
A foolish man built his house upon the sand, the kind of earth that won't work in your life. Now this thing works that way all the way moving to to that very center I spoke of in Matthew 6, 6, the secret place at the top of the mountain where God is found. Now tell me Jesus isn't smart. This is profound literature. This is Nobel Prize kind of connections that are embedded in the text that, that the greatest poets couldn't come up with. And yet it comes like the simple Sermon on the Mount to us. Keeps on going like that. This morning I want to focus on a piece of the Sermon on the Mount that reveals to us what the foundation must be in our lives I want a good foundation in my life. I don't want a bad one. I don't want to be swept away by evil spirit winds. I want my house to stand. Are you in that camp with me? Okay, let's, let's go to the rock and let's see what's going on. When spirits come and winds of strife blow, and they're blowing, you go to the Ukraine right now, there are Christians who are running for their lives, whole cities destroyed. This madman Putin would extend his efforts to not just take Ukraine, but to recapture what used to be the Soviet bloc, yet he is no communist. He's a religionist who wants to recreate the, re the religion of the Middle Ages to take away the godless, anti-believing attitudes of the Western countries that are aligned with NATO. And so we are living in different times. The old ways of thinking don't work. The Bible teaches that church and state will unite not just in this country at the time of the end, but globally. So we should watch and we should see what is happening and commit our ways to God. So the winds are blowing. Jesus said that the meek will inherit the earth. The foolish will build their houses on the sand. One house will stand, those of the wise, and the others will fall. So a foundation matters in your life. And you better not take the word of theologians or philosopher kings to get it right in life. The older I live the more I realize that there are man-pleasers in the world. What's a man-pleaser? A man-pleaser is someone who just wants to preach something so you'll like them. They preach and teach so you will put money in the offering plate or you'll elevate them or elect them to a higher position. Sister White says that there's no place for man-pleasers in the cause of God. So a foundation in your life matters, and it matters if the truth is spoken. Jesus Christ knows what he is talking about. He is a plain-talking kind of preacher and teacher who cares about you and wants you to live. So let's listen to Jesus and live. In Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus contrasts the many who are foolish with the few who are wise. The many will be lost, he says. The few will be, sa the few will be saved. The fact alone should cause us to pause and to listen to Jesus. Look at Matthew 7, 13. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are, what does he say in the Bible, are few. Now, is Christ trying to keep people out? No. But he's plain talking to us, telling us that, look, if you want popular religion, if you want easy stuff, you're on the road to destruction. If you want the right word of God, live it. Hey, that's the way that will get you in. The remnant in the book of Revelation. You guys know Revelation 12, 17. What are the two characteristics of the remnant church? What are they? They keep the commandments of God and they have the, 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 the testimony of Jesus Christ. You could also add Revelation 14, 12. They keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So the testimony of Jesus is wrapped around the faith of Jesus because when the prophets work correctly, because the testament of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, we have faith in Jesus. Believe his prophets, he says. So when we listen to the word of God, we are safe. We go for that other stuff, we're not safe. So the remnant keep the commandments of God. They have the testament of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is the testament of Jesus. How many of you agree with me the Sermon on the Mount is the testament of Jesus? So we better be paying attention to the Sermon on the Mount, not just the book of Revelation or the spirit of prophecy that we've experienced in our movement, but we should pay attention to Jesus' teaching. Now look at verse 16. You will know them by their fruits, Jesus says. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? So every sound tree bears what kind of fruit? What does he say? What kind of fruit? Good fruit. But the bad trees bears what? It says bad or evil fruit, depending on your translation. You know, bad trees or evil trees have no problem being lawbreakers. <clears throat> you say, well, wait a second, Pastor Mike. <clears throat> what do you mean by that? I meant what I said. They will, without care or concern, break the first commandment. 
Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The second commandment, shall not make any graven images. The third commandment, to honor God's name. You notice the name of the beast in Revelation 13, the mark of the beast issue, is an attack on God's name as law. The fourth commandment, that is the Sabbath. Now, we dwell a lot on that one as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, right? We care about the fourth commandment. Are you with me? Yeah, sure. And if you don't, there's something wrong. Jesus said, pray your flight will not be on the Sabbath. Just before he was crucified, he wasn't in the Sabbath doing away business. He was in the Sabbath confirming business just before he died on the cross. Some people say, well, I keep Sunday as a new covenant believer. Now, a lot of honest people do that, and I'm not denigrating their faith. But I am saying this, that according to Paul, Sunday comes three days too late to be in the new covenant. Because the covenant was ratified on Friday when Jesus died on the cross. And according to Paul, you can't add to a covenant once it has been ratified by blood. And so Sunday comes three days too late to be in the new covenant. The new covenant is the everlasting covenant according to the book of Hebrews. The covenant that he writes on our hearts where they shall all know me in Hebrews 8.11 is the everlasting covenant that is God's name, God's law, spoken at Sinai, which is the law of love but given in ten authoritative precepts. So how many of you like affirming the fourth commandment in this place? Raise your hand. You with me? I'm a Sabbath-keeping Christian. doesn't make me better than anybody else, but I, I like the fourth commandment. What about the fifth commandment? Honor your father and your mother. Are you with me, young guys? Is that a good one? Raise your hand high. All right. I like that one too. Now, this, now I like that one also because God is our father. The sixth in our time, thou shalt not what? Murder, kill in the sense of taking life you don't have a right to take. Now that happens when babies are killed on the altar of abortion for the sake of personal freedom. The Word of God allows none of that. You know, if the life of the mother is not truly at risk, and in modern science it isn't, the the medical world has now made it possible for that not to be an issue. And in those rare, maybe off the charts, one in a million cases, of course God cares about the life of the mother. But you know what? Because life is balanced with life. But to just do it because someone had a bad day, to allow an abortion because someone would like to get a college education and not raise the gift that God gave them as a child. The word of God in the sixth commandment does not allow it. Do you realize that 54 million children die every year this way in this world? That's what I've heard, a stat as of this week. Unbelievable number. It is the greatest holocaust of history. And when Christ comes back, he's coming back for all his children. He says, suffer the children. Not put harm on them, but allow them to come to me. Christ died for every one of those little children unborn. They're still children. You know, this nonsense of calling them fetuses. The Bible calls them children in the word of God. And we have no right to sacrifice a child to Moloch. Now, in my family, this has happened. And I tell you, I appreciate love and compassion for people who have erred here. We need it in our family. And I'm not talking about my wife and I. I'm talking about our extended family. This has happened. And I appreciate people who love and understand. That's an important virtue. But friends, we should never teach and implement that in our own medical system and claim to be righteous. It's impossible. All right, the seventh commandment. What is it? Thou shalt not. Okay, that's a good one to keep. The eighth commandment. Thou shalt not. Okay, the ninth commandment. Well, you got them out of order there. That's all right. What's the tenth commandment? You shall not covet. that's That's the law of the mind. So we see the others working down. Thou shalt not steal, kill, commit adultery, and so on. Bad fruit have no place for God's law as a moral standard. So that is why some modern Christian ethicists have taken the place of the Word of God these days to tell, to tell certain believers that the Sixth Commandment doesn't matter like it should. So we can take the lives of children before they are born with impunity so that we can actually kill the elderly because it's convenient. Friends, if a person or church leader violates the holy law of God willingly, they are bad fruit. Isn't that what the Sermon on the Mount is saying? Isn't that what it's saying? Okay. In the book of Revelation, those who oppose the truth become a synagogue of Satan at the time of the end. Those who honor his name are pictured as the Philadelphian church. Sister White describes end-time believers in the context of Philadelphia. In the book of Revelation, friend, those who oppose the truth 
have no place with the one who is the truth. So we should be in the truth business. In verse 18, Jesus compares the true believer to a good tree that cannot bear bad fruit because it is a good tree. How many of you want to be a good tree? Flowers, bright, good leaves in your life. Fruitful. Faith in Jesus Christ is incompatible with an attitude of disobedience. That is why good trees love God and stand tall for God in hard times. Good trees don't have idols. They say, well, you know, I may like a few things, but God first, no matter what. Good trees honor God's name, that is His holy law. Good trees relish the Sabbath experience so they can know God. They want to get to church on early. They want to be a part of Bible study. They want to study their Sabbath school lesson. They want to share Christ. They want to share their faith in the community more and more and more. Good trees honor their father and their mother because they know that their ultimate father is God. Good trees don't kill preborn babies in hospitals or people in the streets out of anger. Good trees value life. Good trees don't take from others, but they give so others can live. Good trees honor the marriage commitment, and they are faithful as husbands and wives, even if it is hard at times. And good trees don't lie to get their way in life, to become man-pleasers, or get promoted in the church or the workplace or the world, to be political instead of honest and good. That's not what a good tree does. I want to be a good tree. There have been times in my life when I've had rotten roots. You ever had rotten roots in your life where it wasn't right? You messed up, your attitudes are off, your actions are wrong, you're hard to someone when you should have been loving. We all have that. But when we set our mind on Christ and his word, we're really good trees no matter what we're struggling with in life. Verse 18, Jesus says, here it is, a sound tree cannot bear evil fruit. It's just the law of nature. Nor can a bad tree, tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, what does it say? Is cut down and thrown where? Into the fire. And then Jesus says it just so plainly. Thus you will know them, how? By their fruits. Is that, is that wise? Doesn't that make sense? You'll know someone by what they do, what they, the product of their life. It'll be evident what kind of tree they are. Jesus here teaches us that it's more important to be a good man or a good woman than to know what is good or bad. To have great theology, it's more important to be a good person on the inside. I think Jordan Peterson talks a lot about that in his focus on modern ethics. And in that I agree with Jordan Peterson. Being a good person matters. Authentic Christian living is more important than a fake religion that is only a form and a facade. Friend, you may claim to know the truth, but if the truth doesn't have a hold on you in life, your claim doesn't mean a thing to God. You may claim to be the remnant that is the few. And I hear people say, oh, we're the remnant. I'm the remnant. Well, when you say that, you better make sure your life lines up with a claim like that. Do you love God with all your heart? Do you really love him enough to value the Sabbath day, to not have idols in your life? Do you stand for life instead of death? Are you a person that is represented by the law that keeps the commandments of God? You may claim to be the remnant of this few, but you're a bad tree that bears bad fruit if you disregard God's word and law in your life. And thus you're part of the many that goes to destruction, not the few who find the way to life. I had an interesting conversation recently with a prominent church leader who doesn't believe at all in taking the lives of children in our hospitals. And I said, why is it that so, many, so few ministers in our church are willing to stand up and let the word of God be laid at the root of this awful problem so it ends once and for all? And it has hit me, you know, if we are afraid, there's one virtue upon which all virtues depend. The foundation of all virtues is humility. I agree with Confucius and St. Augustine. But there's one virtue without which no virtue works. It's the virtue of courage. In Revelation, it says that the cowardly will have their lot in the lake of fire. Friend, we are to be passionately committed to doing the will of God in our life. Not to look good because Jesus died for us. And so when we claim to be remnant, we must demonstrate by the fruits of our life that we are the remnant church. Jesus is directly drawing attention to Psalms 1 here. To open your Bibles, turn to Psalms 1 verse 1. Just like the Beatitudes, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 
But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. <coughs> Bob, could you cut that AC off? <coughs> I'm reacting to it. <coughs> I am okay. I just, it's the humidity. It's, the, it's, it's this wind blast. <coughs> In all that he does, he prospers. <coughs> the wicked are not so, but are like chaff with the wind blows drives away. I gotta gather my voice box. <clears throat> it's actually the humidity over my head, the air conditioner. We're gonna close off that one vent right there so I don't have it blowing on me all the time. When we built this thing, I told the builder, don't do that. He did it. Right there it is. So I'm gonna put a magnetic strip right over that thing in a few weeks and it won't be blowing on me anymore. <clears throat> okay, look at verse five. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. You see that? Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now look at this. But the way of the wicked shall what? Perish. I don't want to be in that group. It pays in life to be a good tree. It will matter in the judgment day also. So let us today by faith in Jesus determine that we are going to be good trees. How many of you want to raise your hand like a tree? You know, I've got a little stand up for a second here, you know. What's that song, you know, where you act like you're a tree? What, what's the song, Robert? You remember it? Well... Wave your hands. You know, there's a song, a children's song about being a tree. Come on, raise them high. Get on up. You don't have to sit down. Come on, raise the high. Sit up. Stand up. Look at and smile like you're a good fruit tree and your leaves or your fingers. Okay, now you can sit down. That's good. I want to be a good tree. A good tree grows tall and upright, right? <clears throat> Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And I said, wait, wait, look what we've done. He, nope, if it isn't good fruit, it doesn't matter. The many on the broad road are religious people who are full of themselves, who think that by their many good works that can be seen, they are righteous before God. They are not the poor in spirit kind of folk, to whom the kingdom of God belongs. And Jesus will not know them in the judgment day. So let's be the right kind of tree. Verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. That is pretty stout stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus wasn't a feel-good preacher in his day. Jesus was a good and direct kind of preacher who taught in love that the people must obey God and follow his will in their life. He taught them in love because he loved them. He wanted them to be saved. We should do the same. So what is the foundation in life that will ensure us that we don't get swept away with human philosophy, with people who are violating God's wall for money at the end time of the end? What holds your feet on solid ground so you as the meek will inherit the earth? Look at verse 24. <coughs> Everyone then who hears these words of mine, and what does the text say? And does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Obedience becomes the condition of standing on the rock. So what is the rock here? The rock is defined as the words of Christ. You can't separate the written word of God from the living word of God as the rock. When we take the words of Christ and we obey them, we are standing, we are building our house on the rock. Friend, when you come to your Bible and you submit to its teachings in your personal life, your personal devotional life, the proper biblical teaching from the pulpit. You are coming to Jesus, and you are submitting to God's authority in your life. You are on the rock. That's how you know. The idea that you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ and know God without paying attention to your Bible or obeying the Word is nonsense. You cannot do that. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5 Peter is talking about Jesus as the rock. It says, come to him, to that living stone, rejected by men, but in God's sight, chosen and precious. And like living stones, be yourselves 
built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christ is a living stone. The world doesn't like him. It doesn't like his teachings, his ways, his character. But we are to come to Jesus and model ourselves after him. Friend, Jesus is the living stone who is the rock we need. And yet Jesus tells us that the rock is his words. So is there disagreement here? No. Because Jesus and his words are the same thing. When you value the words of Christ, you are valuing Christ the living and abiding word of God in Peter is the same thing as the living stone. Turn to 1 Peter 1, 18-23, just a little earlier in your Bible. Peter says, You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest at the end of the times for your sake. Christ came at the end of prophetic time to save us. And through him, I like verse 21, you have confidence in God. With Christ, we are not on, on sandy ground. We have confidence with God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are where? In God. Having purified... Now, let's look at verse 22. Come on. Having purified your souls, how? What does it say in your Bible? By your obedience to the truth for a sincere love of the brethren. <clears throat> love one another earnestly from the heart. <clears throat> Verse 23. <clears throat> you have been born anew, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living, and, and what, what does it say? The living and abiding word of God. Not the living stone here. The living abiding word of God. Same thing. The rock of ages is found in your Bible. When you follow the word of God, you're following Jesus. Friends, in Matthew 27, 27, Jesus talks about the rain that causes us to cry in life. <clears throat> the spirits that are winds that blow against the life house, threatening to tear our house down. Christ wants you and your family to stand and not fall. He wants you to have a solid foundation in your life. He wants you to succeed and not to fail. So as, as we live in the time of the end, we need the Bible in our lives. We need Jesus through it. There is no substitute for a devotional life, for hearing the word of God in prayer meeting and church. If you want to make it to God's kingdom, God wants you to live forever. Jesus does too and not die. Build your house upon the rock. Matthew 7, 25. <clears throat> and the rain fell... And the floods came, and the winds blew, and what does it say? Beat upon that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. Now, what's the rock? Two things. What is it? Jesus Christ and his words. That's right, the word of God. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house where? Upon the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I want Jesus teaching in my life. I, I've studied the great theologians. I've studied historical theology. I don't care too much for any of it, really. I want Jesus Christ and his word in my life. I'm at a point in my life when I'm tired of preaching and teaching only to those who have heard it again and again and again and have grown tired of it. Is it okay to tell you that? I'm tired of that. I was at the Emmanuel's Church, which has become the Living Word Christian Church International. I like the word international. I helped preach a funeral. I had a part in it. I wouldn't have the sermon part for Carl Kent, who died. He was the original architect of this building in the first phase that didn't succeed. And what I was enamored with is how those dear people there are so quick to get enthusiastic about the Word of God. They move in their seats when something new from the Bible is heard. And sometimes we listen to the Word of God and we're just so comfortable. Not, you know, not, you know, you know. So I've been, I'm at a different point in my life. I want to teach the Word of God to people who want to hear it for the first time. In my ministry, a few have latched onto God's Word, I believe. Some have resisted it harshly. I've seen that over the last 20 years, some. But there are a whole lot of people in the middle who are indifferent. It, we call that Laodiceanism. 
They hear it, but yeah, well, let's go home, forget that. It's that apathy that is the sin of God's people just before the coming of Christ that, that prevents us from standing on the rock. Friend, God works with all of these people. He loves them all. If you're in the middle, if you're indifferent, if you have animosity toward the truth, or if you love it, he loves us all. And so Jesus stands at the door and knocks, but he hasn't come back yet because the Adventist church is not ready for the coming of the Lord right now. We are a generation of unbelief that must be baptized in the power of the person, the presence of Jesus through the Bible that is the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy. As a pastor, I want to share the Bible with people who've never heard it before. That's one reason I visit places in my week to go to know people. I'll get out of my easy chair. I, I don't live in my house. I go through the streets of Laurel. I'm trying to find and meet new people. They don't come here, so I go to them. I've determined that I'm going to be the pastor of hundreds of people who may never come here. But I'm going to go to where they're at. And my week will be filled with that as much as I can here and there as I'm doing my errands for reaching hearts. And many of them would never understand what I'm saying to you today, but they would understand a little bit of God's word given with a prayer where in the place where they work. So I go there. I talk to them and their businesses. I have Bible studies going with people. John Dom's material and Jamie Dom's material, Angels in the Glen, on the books of Daniel Revelation. I take booklets with me. I then do a little quick study in Daniel at the workplace. They say, and I've noticed that after I'm doing it, one particular man who works at PC Retro he says, brother. He calls me brother every time I come in the door. Because he knows I am. Because of the word of God. It unites us. And so I want to go where they're at in Laurel, Maryland. Highway 1 seems to be the big corridor where I find most of them. I was this past week visiting a spot with two Bibles in my hand that I picked up from the Living Well Bible Store in Silver Spring, Maryland. How many of you go there? Get veggie, veggie links and all these other things. Well, get a few Bibles, too. And put some names on it for people in your, your sphere of influence. So I recently gave, at this place where he was working, I gave a Bible to a young lady at the business there in Laurel. She received it like a treasure. She took it. She says, you gave me this Bible. And then they say, and this is, makes it worth how sweet. It makes you feel good. How many of you want to feel good? Well, give someone a Bible, a nice Bible. You know, not one of those cheap $5 Bibles that you wouldn't want to give to your dog. Give them a good Bible that looks good, that has a leather or synthetic leather binding, if you're eco-conscious with I am, that makes it look good, and I put their name on it. So they know effort went into that Bible, and I write a note on it, and I say, God's word is a lamp and a light, and Jesus is the light, or something like that. It's amazing how people want gifts in their life. Some people never give people anything. Do you realize the Bible is a wonderful gift? You can give the word of God to people and it, it will mean a lot to them. So two of her associates who worked at the desk with her noticed that she got the nice Bible. Uh-oh, envy started working in the business. They wanted one too, each one of them, the two. Now, she got the Bible. She had said, by the way, my mother never comes to work, but my mother, would you give her the Bible instead of me? Which is, I said, I'll get you both a Bible. So the cost went up. But I didn't care. So the other guys saw me doing that with her, and they wanted one too. So the two of them, I pledged to get them a Bible. It took a while, but I bought two more Bibles, and I was there that day, this week, with my Bibles in hand to deliver, because I can't do this all at once. It's expensive. And I was delivering them that day. One of the two was there, the other was not. It was this past Friday. It was just yesterday. I delivered them to the two. One man was not there, as I said, the other was. The one who was there began to well up with tears to degree when he got his Bible. A young man. <laughs> we were talking about fishing, because I was there looking for fishing rods, because I want to take the young adults here fishing. I have most of the fishing equipment in hand to fulfill my word to go fishing. It's cost me a few hundred dollars to get enough fishing equipment to take our young adults fishing. Don't worry if you hate fishing, you'll love the water, okay? Don't worry about it. We're going to figure it out. Katie wants to go fishing, too. She sent me a note. She told me about fishing today. He told me that his foster father used to take him fishing, which meant that he grew up without a father. In fact, he grew up without a home. He said, I grew up as an orphan without a real father, but my foster father took me fishing at Liberty Reservoir just north of here. I said, really? 
I told him that's where I took my two boys, John Michael and Donald, fishing at Liberty Reservoir. We caught big fish out of there. We had something in common. You could see the fire moving between us, the, the excitement that we knew each other. I said, we probably were fishing at the same time in the same place on a Sunday. He said, yeah. I, I asked him if he remembered the big hurricane that blew through here and changed the river forever. He said, yes, I do. It was powerful. It changed the river. I said, I was there with my two boys, John Michael and Donald. At the day the storm came, storm came, we waited as long as we could. We raced home, but it was the best fishing day of our life. There's something about a storm that brings the fish out. I said it was the best fishing day, and we both agreed that it had never been the same since that storm hit. It changed the river. It was never the same. I could tell that the Bible as a gift meant a lot to this young man who had never had a father in his life. He said, I haven't been fishing in a long time. And I miss my foster father. I could tell he missed those times with that one person in his life who had taken him fishing. I said, you know what? Maybe we can go fishing when we take our, our, our young people from the church to Liberty Reservoir again. Maybe you can go with us. And suddenly his, his smile got on his face. And yes, that would be a very meaningful thing for me to do with you. He was one of the two who wanted a Bible just like the girl and her mother had. He messaged, he massaged his Bible a little bit like a treasure. Take your Bible out again with me. Just put your hand on it. Feel how soft it is. He looked at its binding. He realized how precious it was. He says, you put my name there. I says, your name is important to me and to God. I asked him to give the other Bible to his friend who wasn't there because I want to make him a missionary. He himself can share the word of God with somebody else. I had his name also, John, put on his Bible also. Now, it just so happens there was a third man in the group who wanted a Bible after he saw the two and the two, the two ladies and the two men. Is there a Bible for me? <clears throat> this is exciting. A few weeks earlier, he asked me to pray for him. He took me outside, and then I go into this business almost a couple times a week, and I pray for everybody in the business. So I show up. I'm their pastor. And they, they know I'm their pastor. I show up as their pastor to pray for them. So we went outside. We prayed in the parking lot. Boy, it was a meaningful prayer. He had trouble in his life. I had some. We could pray together. No one's better than anybody else. It felt so good. Now, this man is an honest man who has a sincere nature to him. His name is Steve. So I told him that day that I didn't have a Bible for him, but I would be working on it. It takes a lot of time and money to pull this stuff out. I said, the stock at the Bible store is low right now, and we have to wait for more to come in. I didn't tell him I was going to buy it out of my own money. He got a little nervous. He said, how much does that Bible cost? Because it looks really expensive. I said, about $80 at all when I'm out the door. It's a Bible I'd buy myself from myself. His face dropped, and he was so sad. He said, I don't have that kind of money. I can't afford it. I looked at him and said, you don't have to. I am going to give you that Bible as a gift. He said, really? I said, really? I said, when I give you that Bible that I am giving you, I am giving you Jesus because Jesus, the Son of God, is the Word of God in that book. He looked at me. I said, the creator of the universe is in this book, and he is the living and abiding Word of God. I said, let me show you. Okay. So I opened the Bible, turn to Genesis 15.1 in your Bible. Come on, open it up. Genesis 15.1. I turned to my Bible, just like I am here. <clears throat> and I read Genesis 15.1 to him. And I'm going to show you, I said, I'm going to show you that the Word of God is alive right now. Here it is. I'm using a King, New King James Version because my Revised Standard Version messes it up. So Revelation, Genesis 15.1. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. I said, Do you see that? He was reading the verse. The word of the Lord is speaking to Abram. Do you see it? Do you see the word saying? He said, Yeah, I see the word saying. The word is saying something to Abraham. It means the word is alive. I said, you know, in John 1 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. That's Jesus. He says, I get it. How exciting that is. He's there in the book of Genesis. 
And then turned to the young girl who was the first person to get a Bible. And he says, do you see what's there? Look what's there. I mean, it's right there. It ain't cheap, but Steve is going to get his Bible soon. You know, we'll have his name on it because he values the Word of God. That one verse was a treasure for him. His reward is very great. You see, you don't have to know all the Bible. You just got to find Jesus in your Bible, friend. And because everyone who finds Jesus in the Word of God has a reward that is exceedingly great. That's why we teach our children Sabbath school. We have children's stories here. We do it through song and music. However it works, if a person latches onto Jesus through the Word, the reward is intrinsic. The Word is great for all those who find Jesus in the Word, for humble men and women who choose to build their house upon the rock that is Jesus Christ and His words. Friend, we are called as Christians to be kingdom builders, not lazy, indifferent, active, proactive, passionate for the saving of men and women. Dear heart, Build your house upon the rock. Stand firm in Jesus, the living and abiding word of God, that living stone, precious in God's eyes. And I guarantee you, based on the authority of the word of God, that no storm, small or great, will tear your house down. You will live forever in Jesus' name to the glory of God. God bless you. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.